This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and this is With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. My guest this week is Ashley Nicole Black. She's a correspondent for Full Frontal with Sam B. She also has her own podcast, an advice podcast called Sip on This. She's also a historian of comedy, apparently. She was in graduate school and did not quite get her PhD, but she was studying performance before she became a performer. Our conversation ranges a lot. Um, we talk about advice, and she gives me some. We also talk about white supremacy and racism, kids and not having kids, whether or not kids are good. Uh, and I believe we also talk about bras. So there's something for almost everyone coming right up. Hi, Ashley. Hello. <laughs> so you, in addition to being correspondent um, for Full Frontal, have your own podcast, mm -hmm. which is called Sip on This. Sip on This. And I knew you had a podcast and it was relatively new-ish. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, I'm going to listen to it in preparation for interviewing her. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. We have the same show. <laughs> and this is the guest lineup. Like you had um, Charlotte Clymer. Mm -hmm. You had uh, Igioma um, on. I've had her on. And there's somebody else too. And I was like, wait a minute. This is, oh, and you had um, Rebecca Traster. Yeah. So I'm like, wait. What am I going to talk to Ashley about? Like, she's going to talk to all the people that I talk to. Well, it's funny because everyone's always like, oh, you have all these big stars on your podcast. And it literally, the only criteria is someone who I've asked for advice before. Wow. I mean, well, I see, I thought the criteria was like people you want to talk to. Well, yeah, that too. Right. Because another thing you said on your podcast that made me think like, oh, we really are having like sort of a parallel podcast experience is that the reason you wanted to do an advice podcast is because you would like to talk about real shit. Yeah, I feel like um, one of the cool things about my job is like a lot of times I meet people and they immediately start talking to me about politics because that's what they know about me, which could be uncomfortable. But what's great about it is it gets past that thing of like, how's the weather? Did you watch this TV show? Do you know? And the big one, like, especially in Hollywood, it's like, oh, you're, you're from here? Do you know this person? Do you know this person? You know this? And I'm like, I don't know anyone. I'm a recluse. Stop asking me. <laughs> so it's nice to just, like, skip over that and just, like, what's really going on with your life? Are you mad at your husband? That is what I want to hear You see, about. I'm much more interested in are you mad at your husband than I am in politics. Well, yeah, but like, politics is at least not the weather. <laughs> that's true. But I, but it's, that's funny because I often say that's why I became a journalist at all is because I, I have no patience for the small talk bullshit. Like I just, my husband is like an incredibly charismatic, adorable, you know, average white guy. And he can just do that. He yeah. can like, has this skill set of like asking people, so how did you meet? 
So where'd you go to school? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm not that person. <laughs> I had a friend once who was like, um, I don't know if you're aware that you do this, but I'd like to make you aware that you tend to just walk away in the middle of conversations. <laughs> and I was not aware that I was doing it. But in my mind, I was like, we're not, neither of us is enjoying ourselves. I'll just walk away. And he's like, no, it's just you. <laughs> yeah, I had this, this experience with so my husband and I ran into our neighbor and they started talking, like my husband was very good about, so how are you, where you've been? Like, da, da, da. And the guy started talking about how his toilet overflowed and I pulled up my phone. <laughs> started checking my messages and afterwards my husband's like Anna you pull out your phone in the middle of that conversation I'm like you were talking I mean like I felt like I had nothing to contribute (laughs) I am not a plumber (laughs) you were going in a direction I felt like I knew the story like it was either going to be his toilet got fixed or his toilet didn't get fixed like there wasn't going to be like a lot of drama and excitement um but so let's talk about real shit I was also interested in in your podcast advice sort of angle because I have another friend that does an advice column, Heather Haverleski. She's been on the show. She does the advice column, Dear Polly, for the cut. Um, And I've known her for a long time. And so it's been easy to see with her, not easy to see, but it's been, I've been able to see it, that over time, as she's done advice, she's become sort of more and more engaged with like larger social issues. Mm And I asked her about that one time, and she said it's because she mostly, you know, fields advice questions from women. And over and over again, she's like, and the questions have to do with systemic inequality. Yeah. They're not like, they may think they're asking about work or relationships or friendships, but really, like, it's a problem with the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Is that something, like, you're seeing, like, yourself? I mean, I know you also just do, like, hilarious and fun and serious advice that is more like this is a work issue and whatnot. But I'm curious if you also kind of see that happening. Yeah, it's interesting because I see women writing in with that knowledge, which I feel like previously, because even before I had the column, I was always like the go-to advice friend. And people would just say like, oh, my boyfriend's doing this thing. And I would be the one maybe bringing that broader context. Um, But now it's in the question. Women are asking like, oh, I have this parenting problem. And I'm asking this question as a white woman whose kids are privileged and blah, blah, blah. And I really feel like that, um, I mean, the joke of that is like everybody got woke, but like everybody got woke in the past two or three years. And it's a much larger portion of society now that understands themselves as part of a system, which I think is really great because like I went to grad school, but I also grew up with like parents who are really plugged into these issues and like, um, sorry, but I have to say it, like white people often don't <laughs> understand themselves. <laughs> this this show, I, I often, our core audience is well-intentioned white people. <laughs> My favorite kind. Yeah. Well, Um, I mean, they're better than... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But a lot of times white people don't understand themselves as part of a race or part of a system um, or part of a systemic um, action. So it's really interesting to have watched that shift over the past couple of years where more and more people are understanding their actions as like part of a system. We talk about that some on this show because I do feel like, I, I feel like I've seen the same thing happen. And like, obviously this with my friend Heather, like that happened in, over a course of 10 years mm-hmm. in this shift. And it's happened, her and her readers made the same kinds of shift to where you are and your readers are now, or listeners, I guess. Readers too, because it's Both, also, yeah. yeah. Um, sometimes I feel like we're all kind of stuck in the wokeness though. Like, it's like, I'm woke. <laughs> 
and I'm sorry, radio audience can't see like, <laughs> the, the, like my expression. She's like, making the give me a cookie face. <laughs> um, it's my uh, uh, ally merit badge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that sometimes people do feel like I know where I'm part of the system. Isn't that doesn't that isn't that good that I know? Mm-hmm. And what do you think? I think like we're starting just starting to get past that. And like the next thing is how do you apply that knowledge when it comes to the person you like? You know what I mean? Like, I feel like people are like, I'm woke. And that dude over there is wrong. And you're like, but also you're wrong. And they're like, no, 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 let's not talk about that. Like, I think our wokeness um, has a far reach, but it doesn't have a close reach. I've never heard it described that way, but that's definitely, I think, how it gets experienced. It's easier to see other people's problems than it is to see our own, which actually brings me back to your advice um, giving. You just alluded to this, which is that you were in grad school and you're an academic. Mm -hmm. What were you studying? Uh, I studied performance studies. So I did my master's thesis on contemporary blackface menstruacy. A very fun topic. (laughs) Uh, And I was a PhD candidate. I didn't finish my PhD um, primarily because I didn't enjoy doing it. But I was studying um, improvisation and how actors use improvisation and rehearsal to learn, um, to sort of look at how people use performance as a way of learning. Um, And... I taught a lot. So some of the like advice giving and stuff like that comes out of just like having a deep background as a teacher. But the minstrelry part of that. So it was modern minstrelry, you said? Yeah. So that wouldn't be the kind of what we're thinking of, of the mammy performance. Well, yeah, it's like looking at how the tropes from those more classic performances are still present in, yeah. um, I primarily study television, but in film and television today. Does that background, like, do you still think about that stuff? Yeah, it's like um, there was no plan. Like, um, I was in my 20s, you know, so there was no plan. I was a dummy. But now as a Black woman who is on television, um, having that knowledge allows me to not make certain mistakes um, or to be able to speak up and say, like, I know you think it's funny. This is funny, but let me explain to you why you think it's funny. It's part of a really long tradition. Um, so blackface minstrelsy is the first American art form. It's the first thing Americans made for themselves. And um, out of that comes vaudeville and then those radio shows that then become sitcoms. So the sort of classic tropes of sitcoms, a lot of them are related to blackface minstrelsy. And if you don't know that, you might be like, oh, this is a classic sitcom bit and not know like what's behind it. So um, without having a plan, I've ended up working in television and now I'm able to to kind of know that history that like most people who end up working in television don't study television from an academic perspective. <laughs> I think that's probably an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> most people who like work in television don't study television. Yeah, you learn how to write. Yeah. You learn the technical mechanics of your job, which I also had to do. But in that journey, you don't really learn like the history. That Learning history is a different branch of academia. I mean, I'm wondering about that too, though, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was as a professional comedian, uh, I feel one of the things that gets thrown out at people who have concerns about social justice uh, is uh, how terrible it is that there are certain jokes we can't make anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like in comedy, like you're just, comedy is harder than it used to be because there's this whole like swath of things you can't say. I mean, I would be curious your response to that. Yeah, that, um, I don't relate to that. 
um, from a very basic level because I've always been black. So <laughs> I have always had limits on what I'm allowed to say and do in public. And a lot of people live with limits just fine. Um, <laughs> But I think I didn't expect you to relate to that. <laughs> Just for the record, I'm sorry if I framed it I that way. I actually do get asked that question a lot. They're like, "You're a comic. You must agree with this." And I was no, like, "No, I, I actually, I actually completely did not mean to imply that you agreed with it. I actually more meant I am curious because you work on a television show that is quite funny that somehow yeah. doesn't have this problem. Like you seem to find plenty of material without questioning into yeah, areas. Yeah, and I that, actually. I actually don't think that anything is off limits. And so I trained at the Second City and kind of the ethos there is you can talk about anything, but obviously some things are harder than others. So if someone slips on a banana peel, you want to make a joke about it, that's pretty easy. If someone gets cancer and you want to make a joke about it, you can, but it better be a really fucking well-written joke and it's going to take time to write it. And part of that process is, um, at Second City, they call their process the process. <laughs> Do they trust the process? Yeah. It's a, it? it's a, I mean, it is a great <laughs> process, but it's hilarious that it's just called the process. Um but whatever you, whatever idea you have, whether it's an improvised idea or something you've written, you go up in front of the audience, you try it in front of the audience. And if you don't get any laughs, you probably are not going to get to do it again. Um, if you get <laughs> That a, doesn't sound like a very sophisticated process. <laughs> yeah, it's the process. Um, if you get a few laughs, you're going to rewrite it, you know, and then try again. And you just keep putting it up in front of people until it gets to a point where it's very consistent and most people in the audience laugh at it most of the time. So that to me is the process. That's how you make comedy. Um, I'm not a stand-up, but the stand-up process is very similar. You go out, you tell your jokes, you go home, you rewrite them, you go out, you tell your jokes, you go home and you rewrite them. So it's, I don't relate to the comic who is like, it's harder now because now when I tell a joke, people don't laugh and I have to fix it. And I was like, but that's always what, <laughs> comedy has always been that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's always going to be the younger generation has a different sensibility for music, fashion, comedy, everything than the older generation. And you always end up having to adapt to them because, unfortunately, it's what is it like 18 to 35 is the market that television wants to sell to. So every generation of performers has had to figure out how to stay relevant to 18 to 35 year olds and. I'm sure once I am of the age where I'm facing that as a difficulty, I will feel differently about it. But from this perspective, I can say I feel like that's a normal part of comedy. Well, you're saying that, you know, comedy changes and styles changes and tastes change. But I'm curious from your perspective as a historian of comedy, what doesn't change? Um, I think the point of comedy has always been like going back to Commedia dell'arte to speak truth to power and to sort of um, mock and like pull down the powerful. So I think as long as you are joking about the person in power in the situation, you're probably okay. Like, again, your joke needs to be good. But as a general rule, if you are making fun of the victim or the person who's hurt in the situation or someone who's in a relative position of power lesser to yours as the comic, you are going to have a much harder time than if you're making fun of the king or the president or a rich white guy, someone who we know is going to be fine at the end of the or set. Or the king, president, which rich white guy who is who's, their current. Who's one person, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you made me think about something because I agree. I mean, when in general, when 
people ask me like, why is this joke okay and that joke not okay? Like, you know, the classic kind of reverse racism situations. Mm -hmm. It's like, because, well, it's the power differential, right? Like to make this joke about a guy is not the same as to make a joke about someone who doesn't have the same resources, the same power. And the thing is, people know that. Like my favorite things when people say, isn't cracker the same as saying the N-word? And it's like, well, one of them, (laughs) you didn't say. (laughs) So you already know the answer to your question. Well, and one of them owned the other. Yeah. That's like the other thing about it is that, I mean, that's like the other thing. That's the thing yeah. about it. Context is important. <laughs> um, and it made me think, though, if if that's true, as I agree, that in general, most comedic like forms, whether it's a knock-knock joke or whatever, like have to do with a power differential, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a knowledge power differential, like the person knows more than you and you're making fun of that gap. I was thinking about racist jokes and sexist jokes and how I think the people who find those funny must think that you know, black people and women are really powerful. Um, or oh. they have something that they don't. I mean, I was trying to get my head. I was trying to square those two things. Like, and I do think there's this kind of resentment comedy about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you were answering, and I interrupted. You. Yeah, I think there's different kinds of laughter. So a lot of comedy comes from surprise, and it's like, oh, this is a new idea. I never thought of this this way. You've just reframed this for me. And that's usually the kind of laughter we're going for. There's also like, oh, I hate that person and they're hurting, like mean laughter, which is normally not what you're wanting in a joke. Um, So I think that person who laughs at a racist joke, racism is not surprising. It's been the prevailing uh, way that we have interacted with each other for all of American history, at least. So you're not surprised by racism. You're not like, oh my God, that's so funny. I've never heard someone hate black people before. (laughs) Crazy. Um, You are just like, oh, I hate those people too. And this is a laugh of maybe recognition, solidarity, um, anger and resentment. And that's not what most comics are going for. I am actually wearing a third love bra right now. I actually, it's not an accident. I put it on this morning because I knew I was going to be reading these ads. They say it is so comfortable and fits so perfectly, you forget you're wearing it. I'm going to be totally honest with you. You probably won't forget you're wearing it, but it is super, super comfortable. Um, What I noticed about third love bras right away is I don't have that same sigh of relief when I take it off. And People who wear bras out there, you know what I'm talking about, the sigh of relief. Uh, Third Love does its fittings online, which is also kind of great. Uh, They have you do a quiz so you don't have to go someplace and have strangers put their hands on your body um, if for any reason you feel uncomfortable with that. Uh, They design their bras uh, with your breast shape and size in mind using thousands of real women's measurements so they fit perfectly and feel even better. They have tagless labels so there's no itching and they have straps that won't slip ultra soft smoothing fabrics and lightweight super thin memory foam cups just find your fit your order and try it on at home if you don't love it returns and exchanges are free they also take customer input seriously they recently launched their most requested style cotton t-shirt bras and cotton underwear it took two years to develop the perfect cotton collection which is made with a premium cotton called pima the result is a line of incredibly smooth soft and breathable bras and underwear you'll want to wear every day Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off today. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission free. 
If you know what all those words mean, congratulations to you. If you don't, Robinhood will help you. Robinhood is a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, trade stocks, and keep all your profits. Robinhood has easy-to-understand charts and market data. You can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. The Robinhood web platform also lets you view stock collections, things like 100 Most Popular. In sectors like entertainment and social media, and curated categories like female CEOs, if you want to put your money where your feminism is. And they also have analyst ratings to buy, hold, or sell for every stock. Learn how to invest as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, and track your favorite companies with a personalized news feed. Right now, Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple or Ford or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at crookedfriends.robinhood.com. That's crookedfriends.robinhood.com. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I want to talk a little bit about the show, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. because I love it. It's fantastic. And it, to me is in a vanguard of sorts. I think, you know, prior to, to Sam's show, The Daily Show in particular, The Colbert Report being like the two obvious kind of germinating places for this, I mean, there was such a thing as like daily political comedy. There was such a thing as uh, incredibly pointed, you know, timely political commentary presented in a newscastist format. But all those people stopped short of actually engaging in politics. Mm-hmm your show is engaged, like doing activism, doing politics. Yeah, I wouldn't say we're doing activism. We sell a lot of T-shirts. Um, it depends on your <laughs> definition of activism. I yeah. feel like, the, I mean, like I, what I was talking to someone earlier about interviewing you, I was saying, I mean, I was, I was describing the question I'm now asking mm -hmm. you, um, which is that, you know, I know how Seth Meyers feels about the child uh, separations, mm -hmm. but I don't feel like he's telling me I should... 
I, I should do something. Yeah. Whereas I kind of feel like your show sometimes is kind of explicit. Like, you should care about this. You should do something about it. Yeah, I guess I shy away from the word activism only because activist to me is a person who's like in the streets putting their body on the lines. And I work in an air conditioned studio full of snags. Um, so, <laughs> our, you know, you're right. we're just, by that definition that you're not. An yeah, we're not putting ourselves in the, on the line in that way. But I do think that our staff is very diverse. Um, obviously, Sam is a woman and you sort of lose that veneer of like, I'm not affected by this. Like if you're a mom, Samantha's a mom, and children are being taken away from their parents, it doesn't make a lot of sense to pretend that you're a disinterested party who's just joking about it. because It just doesn't make human sense to be disinterested about that. So I think, yeah, we definitely have a point of view. We definitely have a sense of right and wrong and also of having stakes in the game because we are affected. Yeah. I I guess I choose the term activist because I didn't want to say partisan. And it doesn't feel right to say like you've chosen a side because I don't think it's a sides. And we haven't. It's yeah. it's interesting. Um a lot of people who don't watch the show describe it as partisan. But if you watch <laughs> the show, we pretty much look at each individual situation and say like who's the most vulnerable here and stand up for that person. And if you find that that often makes you feel like it's against you, that's your problem. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, here are these children who are suffering and here's the other side. (laughs) Like, why are you on the other side? I assume because, and I don't want to assume, I should ask, uh, you're an academic, you're you're a historian, uh, you are a black person. It's hard to not be aware of politics. It's Mm -hmm. hard to not be aware of systemic racism, as you pointed out. Um, And so you brought that stuff to your comedy and you bring that stuff to the show. But I wonder if you are surprised at all or you notice that other people covering the news don't frame things from like a perspective of like, oh, wow, this bad thing is happening. Yeah, um, it's frustrating uh, because, of course, I watch a lot of news (laughs) because of my work. And um, the— Like the refusal to call the president a racist. Yeah. Like that that would be a very maybe good specific thing to bring up. Like that doesn't seem to be a a point of controversy. Well, and like— And yet— I understand um, for a lot of people, racist is the worst thing you can call someone. So I understand— from a human perspective, being like, I don't want to be mean and call this person racist. But what they end up doing is being like, well, both sides are blah, 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 or but everyone, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, that's just not true. <laughs> like, uh, yes, maybe um, everyone is engaging in heightened language right now, but only— Even that's not even That's like, not yeah. really true. You know <laughs> what I mean? But like heightened uh, as opposed to the way we talked about politics in another era, maybe— um, but only one small group of people is responsible for hurting children. And that is just true. Now, you could say the other side could do more to fight. They could introduce more bills. You know, yeah, sure. But as far as causing actual harm, we know who is doing that. And it is insane to me to, like, talk circles around it and act like we don't know. Even if you don't want to call it racist, it is harm. And we could talk honestly about that. Um So, yeah, I don't really know what journalists think they're going to lose by saying this is harmful. Um, 
And for a lot of these things, there are like real numbers. And a lot of times they're the administration's numbers. <laughs> the stuff about the border, those are numbers that come from the administration. Yeah. And they're lying about their own numbers. And it's like, as a journalist, what does it harm you to say, you released a study that said six people? <laughs> yeah, that actually, we actually know that because that did happen. So, yeah. you know, um, props to Chris Wallace, I think it was. So that's great. You know, another thing that I think is interesting about your show in, in unfortunate contrast to news in quotes, is is that you don't cover just the snarky politics of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, Full Frontal did one of the most serious investigations of the maternal mortality mm-hmm. crisis that I've ever seen on, you know, like wide broadcast television. Mm-hmm. And I, so now you must you consume a lot of news. Do you, I guess I'm just asking. So confirm for me because I see it too. Like. There is an emptiness to it. Like, do you, how do you feel like, what's the response to that? Yeah, it's interesting. I think in the 2016 election, someone did a study and we talked about women's reproductive issues more than all of the network news combined. (laughs) And uh, when you're choosing someone to vote for, um, how you are going to be able to take care of your health, your insurance, your reproductive health is an important part of making a voting decision. So someone should be talking about it. I think, again, it goes back to like we have a really engaged, really smart, really diverse staff, and we pitch the stories that we care about. Um, so like, for example, when they were um, opening the American embassy in Israel, one of the things that we were talking about just like as human beings is how we don't talk enough about how conservative Christians are really driving a lot of this movement. It's not necessarily Jewish people who are interested in these things. And uh, the inherent comedy of this is that I guess for conservative Christians, opening a U.S. embassy in Israel is part of bringing about the end of the world. So (laughs) it's interesting that you bring up this particular example because I was super excited because I got an email from one of your producers that you were going to use a segment from this podcast yeah. <laughs> from Diana Butler Bass. If anyone wants to look it up, we were talking about actually recorded in New York. Um, this is going to bring about Armageddon. Like yeah. that is the point of opening an embassy in Jerusalem. So that is hilarious. So, <laughs> so as a comedy show, it depends like, on how much you believe in you yeah. know, <laughs> the actual end of the world. Um, I think, yeah, it's like a combination of this is what interests us personally that we want to talk about. And also whenever there's something like that, that's just like inherently funny to us as comics. Like we want to go towards that story. I feel like I'm like a lot of the questions that I'm asking you are kind of winding around me wanting to ask you for advice about how to be a journalist. (laughs) I really do. Like, I'm kind of like, could you please tell us how to do this better? Well, I don't. So I I personally, I think I'm doing okay, but in general, (laughs) I mean, I could, I'm sure I could stand. I mean, if we want to do like a 360, you know, feedback thing right now, we can do it, but I feel like, um, there must be structural barriers. There's a reason why we are allowed to do the work that we do is because we're seen as clowns and like nothing and who cares what comedians say. Like that is a privilege that we have. Except if um, you say cunt, then you yeah, just then like <laughs> run her out. Um, People really care. I think also budget is a thing because, so I was had interviewed some journalists and I mentioned Snapstream. Do you know what Snapstream is? Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. So this is the problem. So Snapstream is this really amazing software that all of the late night shows use. And basically I can log in 
and type any word or phrase and find every single time that phrase has been said on television ever. Um, Or like, let's say the president says, I never said I like apples. I can go and immediately within five minutes. We know that's not true. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Within five minutes, I can find the clip of him saying, I like apples. So it makes it very easy to fact check. That's how we put together those montages where you hear someone saying like, border, 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 border 15 times, because we can find every time someone said the word border on Fox in the past three months or, you know, whatever it is you're looking for. Um, which is also how we end up catching journalists in lies and mistakes because you say something on TV and then I can find the last time you were on TV and you said the exact opposite. So I like brought this up to some journalists and I'm like, how are you possibly making this mistake when all you have to do is go on the Snapstream and look up the last time you talked about it? And they were like, we don't have that. We can't afford that software. So I think like there are just some structural things and most of them I'm probably not aware of. You're being of. so generous. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Because I think like, again, <laughs> our workplaces are probably much more diverse than most journalist workplaces. Um, I think we do get, end up with larger budgets. I think we do end up with more freedom because our bosses, um, like a, from a network perspective, the network wants us to get as many eyeballs as possible. And from a journalism perspective, it seems like the editors have more of like, a political goal in mind when Uh, they're... uh. I mean, otherwise, people are just, like, really, really... I don't know. I go back and forth between, like, is every journalist in the world truly, like, personally so obsessed with finding out why... white people are sad or is there some editor out there who's like please please keep writing this story we've only had 1100 of them and we need more well that's the that's the you know structural problem that we're not having a diverse newsroom yeah because white people are really interested in white people for the most part and so yes like those people that are writing the white people sad stories are genuinely interested in writing 10,000 pieces. There's so many. I know so everything about pieces. white people. There's nothing left to know. Well, that's your job. You see, <laughs> the job of people of color in America yes. is to know what white people need and want because otherwise, you know, you are in trouble. But it is weird. I but, feel but, like- yeah, but we we don't know that. We have no interest in other people's experience. Like anything bad that happens in the world, well, it must be because something that we, like we're, you know, it's not what we did, but it's what we wanted or what we, the choices we made. There's no other like experience that, that matters. Yeah. It's also the scrutiny is uh, imbalanced. So like as a comedy show, it, when you hire a writer's room and then like you announce on AV club or split side or whatever, who's in your writer's room, people will immediately be like, there are no women. There are no people of color. Articles will be written about it. You will get in trouble every time. I've yet to see someone be like, how many black people work at the New York Times? <laughs> you know, like the scrutiny is not there. And it's very weird. I mean, it's the same thing with like language and stuff. It's like, oh, this comedian said this. And it's like, the president said grab women by the pussy and he's still got elected. Why? There's so much more scrutiny on comedy. And in some ways it has made us better because that might be the only reason why someone did hire that woman of color in their room because that article was coming. But it's weird that we're not holding. I think that there's scrutiny in the news business, but it's you're seen as being a partisan if you complain. Yeah. Like it's it's seen as being a partisan issue. Like diversity is itself a partisan issue. That's so weird. I know. It's it very makes strange. no sense. Um, it is. And it's it, it just continues to be that way because, you know, although white people care about white people, we have this weird, like, um, blind spot or, or place. <laughs> Actually, I was interviewing someone for another gig I have where I, um, we were talking about language and precision and how 
everyone has become more aware of the way we talk about things mm-hmm. and having to be, um, you know, putting people first in our language and not using certain kinds of slurs. And when I said blind spot and she was like, you mean place where you lack awareness. Yeah. And I was like, okay, right. But that's a little much, right? <laughs> like, can we agree? Cause blind, blind spot is a thing. Like it's an actual, like, visual phenomenon where Mm -hmm. you have a blind spot. And she was like, I don't know, like a blind person told me he doesn't like it when people use that term. And I'm like, oh shit. Like maybe, yeah, okay, sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe I should ask your reaction to that. My reaction was like, that seems weird, but a blind person asked her to do it. And she also pointed out every time someone who's in the affected group asked me to change my language, I remember how hard it is to ask someone to do something. Yeah. So it's kind of where I fall down. And I do get like another thing, you know, (laughs) but yeah, it's like, it's so much easier for me to adjust my language than it is for that person to move through the world, let alone move through the world and have to constantly be like, please don't hurt me (laughs) in this way. So that even though it's hard and, and I might like slip up, I do try to default to, because I know, I know the level of attack that you get for just being like, hey, please don't actively harm me. Right. If someone has if the courage it takes to speak up and say, don't harm me. Like if that one person did it, there's like 20 people that wanted to do it. Yeah. But couldn't, just couldn't face it on that particular day. Yeah. So I'm trying to not use blind spot anymore. <laughs> but I was saying like, so white people have a huge area of a place where I lack awareness, which is actually weirdly like about themselves. Like we do kind of think of ourselves as like the default color. Mm-hmm. Like, well, white, that's just, you know, if there's a group of white people, that's called a group of white people. That's called a group of people. Yeah. That's not a group of white people. That's a group of people, you know? And so I think that they just don't see, they, I think there's a, they just don't see any problems. And politically. And also if you mean well. Yeah. (laughs) And, well, I've been thinking about this a lot. The other big problem with, and I'm thinking specifically about diversity in newsrooms, is you can talk a good game about it, but when it comes right down to it, people will then say, um, well, but if you mean I don't get to hire the person I want to hire? Yeah, my friend, Steve. We went to Harvard together. Or even just, this is the most qualified person. This is the person I want to hire. Yes, it happens to be a straight, white, cis man. But it's also the best person, and they'll just, like, dig down on that. Yeah, and P.S., it's not the best person. It's the best person on your list. There is someone with every single one of those qualifications who is gay or black or trans or whatever. You didn't bother to go find them. And what if—this is going to be very controversial, but, like, and what if being a straight, white, cis man means you're not the best person? Because you might have areas that you don't experience, that you don't understand, that you don't—that you can't— know about. And it's like in maybe not as an individual, but as a member of a team, absolutely. If you already have, if you have a team of 10 and you already have six straight white men, their beat is covered. You know what I mean? Like the six of them are going to cover all of the things and your four other spots, which is already less than it should be. (laughs) um, Each of those four people are going to have to do so much covering of different diverse issues to make up for the fact that you've stacked your team with people who have the same point of view. And you'll just miss things. You will will just miss things. Like I, I mean, the entire 2016 election would be different if the newsrooms had people of color in them. And I don't think the thing that's 
really frustrating is I don't think they think they miss, they're yeah, missing. Yeah, that's they're, they're an area where they lack awareness. Yeah. I'm trying to come up with a better, shorter <laughs> way to put it. <laughs> because A, they're doing the exact same thing already in preparation for the 2020 election. And B, like the number of articles that I've read that are like, if Democrats want to have any chance of winning, they have to win back rural white males. And it's like, so the, there are two parties that's the reality of this country. Stop Green Party. There are two parties. Okay. Like every time I say that, someone's like, there's three. I'm like, you have get more than 5% of the electorate and then you become part of the conversation. Um, there are Democrats and Republicans. Republicans are reaching out to rural white males. And you're saying the only way Democrats can win is to also reach out to that same group of people. So everybody else, you are just not part of the political process. Everyone should be reaching out to the same person. And by the way, that person is like me, the person writing the article. Everyone should be reaching out to me. I should be everybody's top priority, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> and honestly, you're dumb for not making me your top priority. I want to talk more about all of this. We're going to have to take a quick break. This podcast is supported by the new film, Vice. I have not seen it. I am so excited to see it. It is from Adam McKay, the writer and director of The Big Short and a lot of other comedies. But The Big Short is probably the thing you will want to think about when you think about Vice. Vice is an epic and comedic look at how Dick Cheney, an uncharismatic vice president, became the most powerful man in the world. He re completely reshaped what the vice presidency is. Now, you might remember this. He actually literally shot someone in the face and the victim apologized to him. The film stars Amy Adams, Steve Carell, Sam Rockwell, and a completely unrecognizable Christian Bale whose performance just earned him a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical Comedy. It is now playing everywhere. Article is an online-only furniture company. By eliminating the layers of traditional retail, Article is able to keep prices low and quality high. There are no showrooms, no salespeople, just savings. It is beautiful, well-made furniture with Scandinavian simplicity, very modern and clean. And they are serious about shipping. No matter how many items, every order is shipped at a flat rate of $49. If you need help getting set up, Article has options for in-home delivery and assembly service. I have actually ordered several lamps from Article because, you know, I am now of an age where I don't do a ton of furniture shopping. I've been living in the same place for a while. And it's kind of set up the way I mostly like it. And I was like, oh, what, am I, what, what, what can I do to freshen things up? Light. I decided to change up the lighting. And it's great because I got to get a couple of different styles uh, for not very much money. And I'm going to get to try things out throughout the house. I'm going to, you know, see what a, a torchier can do in this corner and what my reading nook can look like if I have like a reading specific light. There are very different kind of models available within that general style of modern and clean. I encourage you to take a look at it, even if you think you don't need furniture furniture, because I think you'll be surprised at how easy it would be to like get a new end table or get a new lamp or get something that will just change things up enough to make you feel like you did something new. Article is offering my listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim this, visit article.com slash friends, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash friends to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Hi, Ashley. We're back. Hello. <laughs> Um, I, I want to get back to some real shit. We were, that was real shit. The <laughs> politics is real shit. But, um... Another thing that I know about you from listening to your podcast is that you are not planning on having kids. 
Um, I'm on the fence, but I feel like if you're still on the fence at 33, you're over the fence, bitch. <laughs> like, yeah, I was on the fence at 45, <laughs> and then this past year, my husband were like, maybe this fence is like actually not existing. Like maybe we're not on a fence at all. Like, maybe <laughs> we've actually fallen on the other side of the fence. We've fallen on the other side of the fence, <laughs> and we don't know it. So maybe we should just declare our fencelessness. Yeah, and so we're, we're just yeah, not going to happen. Um, and I do feel weird about it. Like, that's actually what kept me saying maybe mm-hmm. was that I didn't want to say no. Yeah, it's um, it's not so much that I don't want to say no. I really genuinely love children. Um, I worked in daycares. I was a nanny. I was a teacher. I'm not accusing you of not liking yeah. children, by the way. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying I, the, my problem is I like them and I really enjoy giving them back. And everyone tries to convince you. They're like, no, but when it's yours, you'll want to have it 24-7. And since that hasn't happened to me yet, it seems like a big gamble to take. <laughs> To have a whole baby <laughs> in hopes that I'm going to be a different person for that baby. It's so funny. Like, I actually, when um, this is really, like, this is getting personal. Um, real shit. <laughs> Weird. I, I started it. Um, when we were deciding about this, and my husband was a little bit more like, come on, like, maybe we should like think, I mean, you know, like, hey, it could be fun. Like, it could be great. Um I actually looked into studies of women who had kids who hadn't unplanned pregnancies. Mm-hmm. And I got real excited about a study I read about um, uh, a women who were denied abortions. This is terrible. It's a terrible, terrible thing that happened. But the study showed that the women uh, who went on to have kids would then, they became, there's no, there's no evidence that they were any less attached to their kids, mm-hmm. no evidence they were any less good mothers. And in fact, Sometimes they would tell researchers that it didn't happen, that they had not attempted to get mm-hmm. an abortion. And I knew something was wrong when that study made me really happy. I well, was- I will say there are also <laughs> studies that women who are denied abortion are living in poverty oh, oh, yeah. within two years. <laughs> so. No, no, it was like, it's a bad study. Yeah. Like, it's not a, like, I was like focusing on, oh, but they love their kids. <laughs> <laughs> I knew something that's not a good, if that's where I was drawing drawing my attention. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, what, I mean, I'm just privileged as fuck. Like, to be able to, to look at that is, like, just, I mean, I knew something was wrong. Um, and it's not about, for me, and this is something I think I heard you talk about, which is that, for me, it's just been, I've just never, it's just never occurred to me that that would be a really awesome thing to do. Yeah, I'm just a really, I'm a really ambitious person career-wise. And when I think like, oh man, I really wish I had, it's my own TV show. It's not another person to take care of. (laughs) (laughs) Another person whose ass I have to wipe has never... I had trouble with my own. Yeah. (laughs) And and again, I have cared for many children. I've been a nanny. I've wiped many an ass, but I've never been like, oh, a day went by where I didn't get to wipe a tiny ass and that that there's something in me that's missing because I didn't get to do that. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, uh, that may change. Maybe once I get all the other things, I'll be like, now I have a TV show and I would like to have a child. But um, for now, I really enjoy borrowing and returning them. Yeah, I'm an aunt, too. And I, being an aunt is fantastic. It is really, like, I didn't—no one told me that. Like, growing up when I just knew that I didn't want to have kids, like, I was like, I guess I'm just going to be— mostly lonely (laughs) (laughs) or just I'll never and I'll never I'll never interact with children which 
for a long time, that was going to be okay with me. Like, I mean, kids are fine, but it's not like I was going to seek out their company. But being an aunt is awesome. Yeah. It's, I, it's better than being a grandparent. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like a grandparent, you have to be old. And also, you have to have had kids. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could... love like their little developmental phases. I love watching their brains develop. My favorite time of childhood is when kids learn to say no. Um, I love watching kids test boundaries and learn and supporting them in that, especially little girls. Like, no, your boundaries are important to me. You said no, the answer is no. Especially when you're like, do you want some chocolate? And they go, no, because they're just practicing no. And you're like, all right, then no chocolate. That's how boundaries work. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just watching them learn that no is important. And that, like, I love it so much. And then they go home and I love the silence. <laughs> I love yeah. that it's quiet in my house after they leave. Also, as an aunt, you get to you, you get to see your impact in a way that you don't as a parent. Yeah. Like, you know you, know you taught them something because, mm-hmm. like, you're the, you're the only person that was there to teach it to them, you know? Like, I taught my nieces to say fuck. I No, I didn't. But, like, I will. Eventually, that's going to be a goal of mine. <laughs> and I'll know it was me, and it was me that did it. Yeah, I have a godson, and so uh, when my friend asked me to be a godmother, I researched, like, what does that mean? What am I taking on? And it says, like, you are responsible for the child's spiritual development. And I was like, okay, I got it. I will be taking him to his first drag show. Like... <laughs> I know what my job is in this child's <laughs> life. <laughs> um, you mentioned ambition as a sort of counterpoint to having kids. For one, we should probably acknowledge, I want to acknowledge that that's not, those things are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting. I do think that it gets, that's a message that we sometimes get and that ambition is also just not feminine. Um, and it makes me think a little bit about what we're t- what I asked you about your advice show in general, which is about the systemic problems that come up in any question that women ask of advice columnists. Because I think that another kind of er question behind a lot of advice is how do I ask for what I want? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of when I hear advice shows or read advice columns, they all seem to be kind of restatements of how do I ask for what I want? Are you good at asking for what you want? Oh, that's a good question. I think... In certain situations, yes, I've had the practice of being like um, asking for more money or, you know, what the probably in a professional situation more comfortable than personally, because I am the kind of person and like as an advice columnist do as I say, not as I do, but I am the kind of person a lot of times who's like, well, I could ask like in a relationship, I could ask this person for what I want or I could just leave and I'm a leaver. (laughs) I will peace out in a minute. Um, So yeah, I feel like I'm getting better at it and it's something that I'm practicing. And I will say for the most part, if you state what you want, you will often have very good results. I think what happens, especially with women, is we delay doing that for so long that instead of stating our own wishes, we end up telling the other person, you have to do this. And I feel like if you can state what you want without expectations for that person changing it, because you just can't make another person do something. It's just not... Um, it's just not possible. You can state what your wants or needs are. And if that person cares about you, they may comply with them. And But I think like it's getting yourself to that place where you're like, I've crystallized for myself what it is that I want and I'm going to express that. And I'm not in charge of the outcome. I think it, that's difficult to do, but it feels better than being like, you have to do this. And then you don't get what you asked for. And then 
now you have to deal with that. Uh, so I'm in recovery, and uh, there's a couple of things that you've said that make me think of that a little bit because the way we talk about our issues and problems. And when, in uh, Al-Anon, like one of the things that happens is you're not supposed to make demands of people who are, you know, your your alcoholic or your mm-hmm. addict. Like you're not supposed to be like, you can't drink. Yeah. It's consequences. It's like if you drink, I'm going to not be here. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like you can't say that unless – you can really do it. And you have to do so much work on yourself to be like, am I going to be able to walk out the door when this inevitably happens? Right, and you can't, don't, so, and don't say it if you don't mean it. Like, that's another thing they'll, you'll hear is like, don't make that threat unless you really want to do it. And, mm-hmm. you, it's, and also, not to get too far afield, but it's okay to be in a relationship with someone that's an alcoholic or an addict. You don't have to leave. Yeah. But if you say you're going to leave, you need to leave. Yeah. Um, another thing that made me think of recovery when I was listening to you. This is basically a podcast about how you should listen to Ashley's podcast. <laughs> it's a long commercial. It's a long for my- commercial. Um, is the way that you deal with jealousy. Uh-huh. Which explain, and then I will I will do my little like what that made me think of. Yeah, this is a was a big life uh, revelation for me, and I love sharing it with people because it really did change my life. Um, so in comedy, there's this real like sort of false scarcity that that institutions create where they'll be like, we're hiring 10 people and only two of them are going to be women. And so the women— See, that's weird. Yeah. But could, at the same time, you could get criticized for not hiring enough women, but like you also put distinct quotas on it. In yeah. the same industry? Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> well, I will say that's uh, in television you get criticized. Um, okay. We're talking about comedy more. Probably. Oh, okay. Um, but also some people do not care about criticism. Um, so what ends up happening is women feel competitive towards each other because 50% of the population is now fighting for 20% of slots. And so, of course, you're going to have competitive feelings. And then you go, oh, look at women. They're so catty and bitchy and they're always <laughs> competing with each other. And it's like, no, actually the system has set up, that is the system's fault. It's not those women's fault. Um, But I would find myself like uh, feeling jealous or competitive with another woman. And I'm like, you know what? No, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to compete with other women. I don't want to ever even have the thought in my mind of not wanting that woman's success. Um, I have to fix this. I don't want to be this person. So what I started to do was every time I felt jealousy towards a woman, I would reach out to her and offer to help her. Um, so it'd be like, oh, you have an audition? I'll come over and tape it for you. Um, I'll give you notes on your script. I will run lights for your show. Um, not in a way that's like taking over. I feel like a lot of times when people offer to help, they're like, I'll be your director. And it's like, that's not helping. Helping is I'll help you sweep the floor after, you know. Um, and I found that like when I was working with these women and helping them and supporting them, um, one, I would see how much work they were doing. And I think we get jealous of people because their success looks magical. Like, oh, she just got that because she's prettier than me or, you know, whatever. But then when you actually work with her and you see, oh, I watched her spend three hours studying and rehearsing and blah, 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 blah. She, though, there's work behind that. And then also, if there's something that you're not doing that they're doing, you will see what that is. And you're like, oh, you know what? You're really great at this. I'm going to keep working on that. So instead of being just sitting at home being jealous, I'm going to build my skills. So what I need to do is get Beyonce's number. Yeah. And, and I offer call to her, help her and offer to help. I'm sure I'll just sweep the floor, Beyonce, whatever you need. <laughs> but really, like, I heard that idea and I love it. And it reminds me of a thing that, you know, we do in 12-step programs, which is we pray for the people that we resent, mm-hmm. um, which 
it's funny. The way I usually explain that is that it can work out sort of in one of two ways. One is it it can teach you just put yourself in that person's shoes, which is sort of what the how, how can I be helpful to you um, works as. Or I'll be honest, sometimes it means you just I'm like tired of thinking this about this person, so I'll just stop being jealous because I just don't like having <laughs> to, I don't like, pray for I just don't want to pray for them anymore. I mean, and, and that sounds weird, but it, it kind of, it kind of works. Um, but I really did have a moment where I think that's a, I think it's an amazing tactic, but I was like, but all the people I'm jealous of are like genius grant winners. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, like, I don't know. How do I, uh, but, and I am actually a little bit curious. Maybe put your advice columnist hat on, like, what if my jealousies are like not about like the person that I know, but about more like ideas of the people I have about you know successful women? Um, I, I, I would say maybe like do some research about that woman because <laughs> everybody has some shit that they have gone through, and uh, most people are doing interviews and stuff like this. You may read, um, and just once I think once they start to feel like a real person, you're like, oh, Beyonce, you know is a goddess. She's not a human being. I will never be like that. But of course, Beyonce has been cheated on. You know, Beyonce has had difficulties with her father, you know, and making her a real person. You tell you like, yeah, she gets up and puts on her panties one leg at a time, just like I do every day. I think she probably has someone else put on her panties, (laughs) but like. (laughs) And she works really hard. She does work really hard. And I always tell, I always say this as a joke. like, yeah, if I spent 24 hours a day singing and dancing, I could eventually be Beyonce. She's been doing this and she was a teenager. I have chosen not to spend that my time that way. And that's why I'm not Beyonce. That's not her fault. <laughs> that's well, my fault. Well said. It's well all that time I'm spending sleeping and eating. And <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, know, what I was going to say one more thing. I also do a loving kindness meditation, which is very similar to what you're talking about with the 12 step thing. And the thing is you start with yourself and meditate on loving kindness for yourself. And you go out to, you know, your friends, your family, your neighborhood, your state, the world. And like one of the last ones is people I hate. (laughs) And it's very difficult to do. It's very hard to get through a session. I sometimes fail at myself before I even get to anyone else. But what I like about that is having compassion for yourself is tied to having compassion for the people you're jealous of or the people you hate. Because it's always about you. It's always some reflection of yourself that you see in that person, something you think you're lacking that they have, or something they have that you don't like about yourself, and they seem to be succeeding anyway. Like, I get a lot, um, I probably shouldn't share this, but I get a lot of grief from thin women sometimes. They'll be like, oh, well, it's like very cool for you that you get to be on TV, and you know, even though, you know, and- Is and there a, that was a really good- That's some gesturing okay. to my body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, um, you are garbage. That's a very mean thing to say, but I do have compassion for the fact that you are probably running in the gym this morning telling yourself, I'll never get to be on TV unless I punish myself and lose weight. And then you saw this fat bitch on TV and you're like, you're, you're, you're ruined. But it's like, that's not about me. That's about your feeling about yourself, your hatred of your own body that you've projected on to mine. And so when I'm that person, I have to remember Oh, if I'm like hating on this woman, it's probably because there's some part of me that I need to sit with and accept. That's very profound Um, and hard. Yeah. And actually, something that I want to do more of on this show is actually talk more about body image and size-ism. I don't know if there's a good ism yet for that, (laughs) for um, 
how we discriminate against certain body types and how we talk about body types. I do feel it's like one of the areas of wokeness that it's the last frontier. It might be. Like people who would never say something negative about another race or whatever are feel just fine being negative about people's bodies. And what's interesting about that to me is that it does also get very directly aimed at themselves. Mm -hmm. Like I don't know of anybody who I've seen – I don't – I can't imagine and don't know of anyone who's like mocked a person who's not thin and then been like – and I'm perfect. Yeah. No, it's like, this is about you. I'm fine with my body. It gets me where I need to go. We have a great relationship. Uh, you're not hurting me with this shit. <laughs> like, yeah, this people is about who, you. People who really mock, who really have, have disdain for other people's types of bodies aren't like totally happy with, they're never, never happy with yeah. themselves. Like it's it was sort of like what you described, but I think it, but it gets internalized, but it gets sort of translated into, but we're supposed to be upset about fatness. We're supposed to be upset about being anything but that. And how dare you not be upset? I'm uncomfortable. Why aren't you uncomfortable? Yeah. Um, Speaking of discomfort, that's sort of one of the uh, other things I felt like our our podcast have parallel um, sort of purposes uh, because you do advice often about personal, you know, things. Um, I did uh, hear you say that you sometimes get asked things uh, that aren't in your lane that you can't answer. And my your example was what I do about my racist, you know, Trump voting dad. Mm-hmm. And you don't. You my dad's black. So can't speak to that. That's <laughs> not. I mean, I could speak to it, but it's not an experience that I've had. I would say the harder ones are like, um, you know, may, I've never been married. I've never had children. Um, so s- stuff like that. You know, like I had my mom on to give parenting advice because I just I don't know what it is to be <laughs> I just have you have a dog. Yeah, I do have a. <laughs> <laughs> I have pets too. Sometimes I think it might be a little bit like that. And <laughs> then also I realize that my the way that my husband and I deal with our pets is really good proof that we should not be parents. <laughs> it's really you cannot drop your kid off like at a kennel. <laughs> well, you, I mean that's what daycare is. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, but I, I have an awkward um, piece of advice to ask you, mm-hmm. but I think it's in your wheelhouse. Um, I get asked this. And it's not in mine, which is I'm a white person. I'm a well-meaning white person. I want to expand my friendship circle. Oh, that's a that's a big question. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Yes. How can I have black friends? How do I how do I make friends with how to make friends with black people? It actually sounds really dumb, but because I think it's more earnest than that. It's a really common question. It's not. Also. It's not like how do I make friends with black people? That makes people sound like they're you know, have no idea what, how to make a friend. It's, it is sincere. Mm -hmm. Like, what do I do? All my friends are white. Yeah. Um, that's a really common question. So it's not a dumb question at all. Um, I would say like, first of all, from the perspective of a black person, there's nothing I want less than someone being like, I would like a black friend. Let's (laughs) hang out. Like, so don't do that. (laughs) If you were tempted to do that, don't do it. Um, I guess I'll put away the card that I, Yeah. <laughs> don't after this podcast DM me and be like, I do need a black friend. Are you available? I'm not. I'm- <laughs> we create a Hallmark, create a whole series of cards. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be my trans friend? Um, so not that. Um, I think that that is a really great intention. But what is difficult about that intention is you're still looking for a person of color to solve your problem. Your problem is that your circle is too white. Uh, To just be like, hey, you come over here means you want me to solve your problem, which means you're still centering 
yourself and putting yourself first, which is still kind of racist. So um, if your circle is too white, it's because something is going on in your life that you need to fix that has nothing to do with people of color. Is it the neighborhood you live in? Is it the job that you have? Is it the way you speak and behave? (laughs) Um, What do you need to fix about your life that's going to like... This question is from Donald T. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I feel like he does have this question. He's like, where am I? My African-American. Why don't they like me? It would be your words and behavior, sir. Um, So yeah, if you... Um, were to, for example, go to a black church, there would be a lot of black people there. And some of them might eventually approach you for friendship, but that's not you going to that person and being like, I need a friend. That's you saying, I need a different input in my life. I'm going to put myself in a new situation with an open heart and see what happens there. So I would say, what do you need to change about your situation Um, where you will be around black people and then they can make the choice to be your friend if they would like to. But even if they don't, for example, let's say you join a black church. Um, Maybe no one will ever talk to you and want to be your friend, but you're still sitting in church. You're hearing the sermon. You're hearing the music. You're learning about their experience. You are broadening your experience without bothering anyone because they're still going about their Sunday the way they would have gone about it. And obviously, like, not everybody's religious. Not everybody can join a church, but what's your version of that? If you were to join an African dance class, um, if you were to um, just be more open as you walk around your neighborhood, not with your face in your phone, but smiling and saying hello to people. Um, I think it's more And about, if your neighborhood doesn't have any people of color in it, then maybe that's another thing. That yeah, that's something be, for you to examine yeah. for yourself, um, especially if you have kids. If you, are, if you have chosen to raise your kids in an all-white environment, that's something to think about yourself very heavily with. Um, but yeah, I think it's like finding that balance between enriching yourself without asking or demanding or expecting someone else to help you with your journey. To do the emotional labor. Yeah. The thing that I've offered has been sort of what you're saying, I guess, a little, I didn't think of black church, but like to get involved in things that are of interest to people of color, not necessarily even just black people, like a Somali neighborhood like you might want to go to that grocery store. Yeah. Like, <laughs> go to a you Black might Lives go, Matter march. Right. You know, like where are people already hanging out? Yeah. Do service work in some in, for a volunteer organization that affects like people who are not white, you know, of any like, poor people. You know what? If you do work for poor people, probably you're going to meet some people who aren't white. <laughs> and also like do, I like you say, do work, not start one. I think a lot of white people are like, I'm going to start. It's like, no, somebody's already doing it. You're for sure not an expert in that thing. Like join something. Don't think that you're going to start something. Another thing that I've thought about and tried to do myself, um, and it maybe isn't kind of the exact same thing, but I feel like it it starts to do the personal work that you're talking about, which is to consume culture created by people of color. Yeah. To buy those books listen to those podcasts. You know, I guess a lot of people, the, the movies and TV shows are pretty, like, popular. Yeah. <laughs> the easiest thing to do is to look at your Twitter. I, um, yes. Yeah, the majority of people follow majority white men on Twitter. Also, let's be real, black women are the best at Twitter. If you start following more black Twitter, you're going to have a better Twitter experience. If I do hand clap emoji, is that appropriation? Um, so Keep your hands yellow, please. <laughs> Don't make your hands brown. <laughs> I'm doing hand clap emoji to the microphone in their very white hands. Uh, I agree. Um, something I talked about on the Pod Save America New Year's Intentions podcast was being aware of who you retweet also. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I know that my world has been dramatically opened up by following interesting people on Twitter. And I also, I think there's someone, I can't remember, I think it might be, I'm not sure it's a BuzzFeed writer, Katie Napolis, Natopolis, I think, that has like unfollow a white guy a day. <laughs> As a rule of thumb, hopefully I'll have to I'll have to check and see if that's that's the person. But I like that idea. Mm-hmm. I think I want to do it. I'm just going to unfollow one white guy every day. Maybe that's the wrong way to think about it. <laughs> but I do feel like it makes you need to be aware. Just be aware of who you're following. Yeah. And, but, what and then you'll consuming. know what they're interested in. So then if you do go to church, you'll be like, hey, did you watch Bird Box? Because I've been on Twitter. Black people fucking love that movie for some reason. I was going to say, actually, (laughs) we can do a sidebar on this. You know what? (laughs) I don't know why, but I did watch it. I was like, oh, Black Twitter is talking. Part of it is like being able to participate in the conversation. So like once people are joking about Bird Box, I'm like, well, I need to come up with my Bird Box joke. So I have to watch the movie. But yeah, there's only one Black person in the movie. There's nothing Black about this movie. And... Because I've like read, I read the novel and it's like a decent novel and I heard, whatever. And I saw like, I do actually, one of the things that I've done with my life is I do feel like I have an ear on black Twitter. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if I fully know, but I saw the Bird Box stuff and I'm like, it's a movie about like aliens and Sandra Bullock is in it. And I don't, I think it's just over the top and we love over the top shit. (laughs) I don't know. But yeah, it's like. You'll just know there's just like things that are going on that I I think like probably more black people we than anyone else watch that that's movie. Like, that's like, all right, okay. <laughs> so the only way to know what's going on in the community is to pay attention and listen, and then you'll be the cool one in the know at work at the water cooler who's like, I watched Bird Box too. And then all the other white people will be looking at you like I don't. <laughs> but what? what? <laughs> and you'll have to explain. Well, anyway, that's probably a good thing to have to explain it. <laughs> so in the field. Like, you do have to talk to racists. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Um, like, so what what is the experience of, like, wow, so I got to go up and talk to this racist? Yeah. I mean, well, someone who's an avowed racist. you don't know going to be racist well, before also, you talk to them. You usually okay. find out pretty right. quickly after the conversation. And, and who knows? You might be talking to a racist right now. Yeah. No one's wearing their racist pin when you start right. the interview. Yeah, you right. have to figure it out. Um It's interesting because I get a lot of feedback that's like from white people. That's like the work you're doing is so important and more people should be doing it. And it's so great that you talk to these people and blah, blah, blah. And here's the thing. That is not my job. I am a comedian. My job is to make comedy. It is no black person's job to fix racism. Y'all started it. Y'all continue it. When you guys get tired of doing it, you'll stop doing it. It's not my job to try to fight it. And that's not what I'm there to do. I am there to get something funny to put on television. And I am very well compensated for doing it. And I often have a security guard with me. So like, those are the conditions under which I am talking to racists. (laughs) I have a pound of makeup on, a outfit that someone else purchased for me, a camera, you know what I mean? So I think like a lot of people are of the misconception that racism is going to be solved when black people do this work. And it's not. And I don't want to be confused for that being the work I'm doing. I am making comedy. My job is to honestly present to you that person's perspective. So the way that I do that is by being a really good listener, making them feel safe and comfortable so that they can open up and say their honest perspective, which is a little bit more difficult for me to do. Um, Like Alana Harkin is one of our other correspondents. She looks like a Fox News correspondent. And if she didn't tell you where she was from, you would absolutely think she was from Fox News. And people will just say the most racist shit to her immediately right off the bat. Um, In order for me to get to people's truth, there's a little bit more of a song and dance and of them saying what they think is 
politically correct, but because we come from different cultures, actually their idea of political politically correct is still pretty racist to my ears. <laughs> but it's even getting past that to like their honest truth. And a lot of times what that truth is, is fear and misunderstanding. I don't know what this is. I don't understand it. Therefore, I am afraid. And the way to keep this thing I'm afraid of away from me is to yell like, angry things at it. Um, but it really is just making people feel safe and comfortable enough to tell you the truth. Thank you. <laughs> Which isn't going to fix racism. It's just going to put it on TV so you guys know about it. Yeah, no, it's not going to fix racism <laughs> at all. And I, 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 pardon me, I feel like um, there's an awkward thing where I was talking about how black people have to know white people really well. You know what I mean by that, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a survival tactic. Like, it's you, not something we do for joy. <laughs> it's literally like you could get killed if you don't properly like understand white people's like needs, wants, et cetera. Yeah. And you're like, it's interesting because a lot of times white parents will be like, I don't feel like my kid is ready to learn about this. And no black parent has ever said that because they're like, your survival depends on you understanding what country you live in and what you need to do and not do in order to be safe here. Um, and it can at times be too restrictive, but it is done out of survival. It's not the concern is not how can I make sure my kid has the happiest childhood. It's how do I make sure my kid gets to have their whole childhood. I still feel like there's some level of that that white people don't understand. That like there's a, that it's a life and death situation daily. Like that's not dramatic. That's not. Yeah. <laughs> and because a lot of times the response to that is like, I'm so sorry you have to feel that way. And it's like, yes, but the response is. Not like, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. You should be more free. You should have, you know, it's what are you, if you feel that way, what can we do to change this? The solution is not black people change. It's not just act more free and see what happens. <laughs> it's create a world where people feel comfortable to be free. And obviously it is that that is better than it used to be, but we're not 100% there. And the solution is never going to be found within people of color. No, I, and it's, it's, I'm not sure exactly if white people are up to the challenge sometimes. I mean, I think that the only thing, what we have to do is accept the input of people of color. Like that's the, that is the role that we can ask people of color to play. Like not fixing it, but helping us to see what needs to be fixed. Yeah, and like accepting that input however it comes. Like I think a lot of times people are like, well, I want to learn about racism, but you were rude to me, so <laughs> never mind. And it's like, well, you know what? After fucking hundreds of years of this shit, I think you could take a little rudeness with your information. And if you can't, some people are very sensitive, then don't ask people to help you. Read a book. I promise you the book is not going to be rude to you. <laughs> the book isn't going to call you names. You know, there's every single Twitter feed, article, like, Do a book. fucking Google search. Yeah, TV like. show, documentaries <laughs> are out there and none of them are going to insult you personally. So <laughs> if you can't handle an insult with your knowledge, don't ask a human being. And in fact, like there's a plenty of black people and other people of color, like Latino people and, and people of Asian descent who have all written books yeah. <laughs> about what white people can do. Painstakingly <laughs> spent years doing research, writing that book for you. Give them 1350 and read the damn book. You don't have to ask like the woman, you know, like in your gym class, the one black woman in your gym class, yeah. can you teach me about racism? Which I, that kind of thing happens all the time. I, and I mean, can you teach me is the <laughs> nicest version. It's often you must teach me. Stop what you're doing right now. Can I touch your hair? <laughs> 
I want you to teach me racism and I want to feel your hair. I think we finally got the word out on that okay, one. Good. So we got it. What's our next thing? <laughs> is don't ask me to teach you about racism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ijeoma said this that like she's written a book. It's a wonderful book. You yes, should go buy I've, it. I've interviewed her on the podcast. People yeah. will email her and be like, hey, I saw that you wrote this book. Can you explain XYZ to me? It's like, <laughs> buy the book or go to the library and get it for free. What are you doing? Yeah, go to the library. Encourage libraries to buy the book. Yeah. That would also be a good thing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that is it for the show. Thank you for making it here to the bitter end. If you are listening, you are probably a super fan. If you're a super fan, then why don't you come work for me? Being a fan is actually a job requirement. You can find out other requirements if you go to the crooked.com website. It's crooked.com slash crooked dash careers. The job opening is a few, you have to scroll down a bit, but it's right there. WFLT producer. Uh, And you can then email your resume to jobs at crooked.com. And if you're not interested in working with me, I'm glad you're working with me in a more metaphorical way. Like we're doing this work together. That's it for this week. Remember, please take care of yourselves. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 